Please open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Today I'm going to refer to several passages of Scripture. You even see in your bulletin a handout. Um, Don't look at it right now, just put it aside. We'll look at it later. But I have it there just to help you interpret some passages and make it easier to read later. What I want to do today is read part of the same passage that I preached on last week and use this passage to talk about a theme or a topic because this passage is really the root or the seed of this theme or topic that I want to speak on today. Let me read Mark 14 verses 53 to 65. It says, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men, uh, what, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your wisdom, for your insight into this passage of Scripture, and even the relevance of it to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. So last week I preached on Jesus' trial before the high priest here in the temple here in Jerusalem. And from the days of Moses... All the way here to the time of Christ, the high priest was the one who went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest was the one who wore the breastplate with the twelve stones that were representing Israel with the beautiful colors on his breastplate. Most importantly, the high priest, which is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, he was a foreshadow and a prefigure of Christ to come. He was just a sample of of the glory of Christ and the great high priest, Jesus Christ. So, 
as we see here in the book of Mark, this high priest who was a foreshadow of Christ to come, he is violently opposed to Jesus Christ. We saw last week that this high priest was a man of lawlessness. Remember, Jesus is captured and covered of night. They're afraid of the crowds. So that's how they acquire, that's how they capture Jesus. And even after they arrest Jesus, considering how lawless this man is, it's after they arrest Jesus, they they try to find the evidence to convict Jesus of a crime. And even their witnesses do not square up with one another. They contradict one another. The high priest actually changes the subject from, from the legal and he goes to the personal. He goes, he says, are you the Christ? And he simply hates the fact that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is claiming to be the Christ. So instead of abiding by the law, instead of sentencing Jesus to death on the basis of two or three witnesses, the high priest breaks the law even more. And he sentences Jesus to death without any witnesses. He is just going to sentence Jesus to death based upon what Jesus himself says, which is against the law. So in his trial, think of this. In this trial of the high priest against Christ, the high priest is the judge. He's really the jury as well. He's leading, influencing the jury, this hearing. He's the prosecutor. And he's a man of lawlessness. The Christ here, Jesus Christ, is coming face to face against a false priest in a false temple. And this man that Jesus Christ is face to face against, this man is blaspheming the reality of God in the flesh right here. In other words, this high priest is functioning as the Antichrist in this particular event. So with this in mind, what I want to do today is preach on the subject of the Antichrist. Because when we study this theme in the Scripture, it'll help correct a lot of misinterpretations and misapplications about what people mean and when people talk about the Antichrist. For example, let me give you a common misinterpretation of the Antichrist. Well, some people think this, that the theme or the subject of the Antichrist is simply about one man at the very end of history who opposes Christians right before the final coming of Christ. And so we're all just sitting back waiting for this, whoever it is, to arise. And then whenever that Mr. Antichrist comes, that's whenever it finally arrives. That's whenever the great tribulation happens. That's when all these problems happen. And then Christ comes and destroys the Antichrist and the resurrection and all that. Well, that is not accurate. That is not a wise way of interpreting the Bible. In fact, when you study this subject better, you will get better wisdom of applying the subject of the Antichrist to your life and even to history. Now, to do all this, let me give you two foundations, two quick points before I move further, and that is this. It's better to realize, number one, that the Antichrist subject in the Scripture, the Antichrist subject, 
is not a person, but a pattern. It's not a person, but a pattern. Let me explain what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> the Antichrist subject, it's, it's not about a person at the end of history. It's about a pattern that comes in every single generation of history. It's a pattern that people embody. It's a pattern that a government may embody. It is the acts of evil in all the different ways that evil may function and how it comes against Christians and how it comes in every generation. And there is sometimes minor or there's minor and major ways in which the spirit of Antichrist or the embodiment of an Antichrist figure or a system may manifest itself. And that's why when you talk about Antichrist, the subject of Antichrist is not a person per se, but it is a pattern that is repeated. And it may be embodied in a person for a while. It may be embodied in a system for a while or a government but then the next generation comes and then it, it changes form. It changes name. It, it, it's, it keeps being embodied elsewhere with, and there's a pattern that's followed. Okay, that's point number one. Number two is this. And this is really critical. The New Testament, the New Testament speaks about two times, two times when God's judgment will come. Okay? And that is this. There is a time, and here's what's even uh, difficult about the New Testament. Both of these two judgments, the Bible will use the same language. The Bible will use the same terminology to speak about both of these judgments. And sometimes it's hard to know, is it speaking about the first one or is it speaking about the final one? And here's the difference between the first one and the final one. There is a judgment that Jesus speaks about, that the apostle speaks about, which come within history at the end of the apostles' generation. That after the apostles die, there's a judgment of God, a coming of God, a destruction that comes from the Lord upon the city of Jerusalem. That's mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's also a second judgment, not within history, but at the end of history whenever Jesus returns and raises the dead. And that's how the Bible is dynamic. The Bible will speak about a judgment within history and also a judgment at the end of history. And commentators and preachers and theologians sit there and wrestle and say, which one is it talking about? And it gives you wisdom to know when you at least have two to work with, you're at least dynamic, you're flexible, and you're realizing that some of the patterns that happen at the end of the time of the apostles, there's, where there is an antichrist, where there's an antichrist system, an antichrist figure, there's also replications of that throughout history, even to the end of the world. There'll be a great apostasy before Jesus comes. There'll be a opposition to the church. So it's not about simply one thing in the future. It's about this pattern that is being set in the Bible. Now with all of this, let me explain to you the first Antichrist that the church had to face against. And that's the man I, wrote, I read to you about here. 
This high priest is functioning as the Antichrist in seed form. In fact, he is really the archetype right now of the Antichrist because he is opposing Christ. He is right there face to face with Christ, desiring to kill Christ, desiring to destroy him. He's opposing him. And after the high priest here is opposing Jesus Christ, this high priest is also the high priest position here, whoever fulfills it. He is going to oppose the followers of Christ later. Turn with me, please, to the book of Acts. If you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. In chapter 6 in the book of Acts, this is where Stephen is chosen to be a deacon. And then Stephen will come before the high priest and the council. And look in verse 10. Acts chapter 6, verse 10. Let me read starting there. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. See, they're doing the same thing they tried with Jesus. They're going to do it with Stephen. They're going to bring false accusations against him. Look at verse 12. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Part of that's true. Jesus did talk about the destruction of Jerusalem to come in. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And look at chapter 7 verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, and right, right, right there, Stephen begins a long sermon right before the high priest, right before this Antichrist. And he preaches and he talks about the history of Israel and the, rebellious, the rebellion of Israel. And then they take Stephen out and they stone him to death. And Jesus is standing up there above the firmament. He, the firmament opens and he goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his name is Stephen. Because the word Stephanos is the word crown of victory. His name is Stephen because he wins. They killed him, yes. But in God's viewpoint, he won. Because he went all the way to the end. He was the first martyr of the church. He is crowned with victory. That's why his name is Stephen. But what I'm pointing out right now is the Antichrist of that generation. The Antichrist of this moment is the same Antichrist that went up against Jesus Christ and had Jesus Christ crucified. But Jesus Christ won in his death. That was his victory. Uh, Stephen wins in his death. That was his victory. And over and over again, every time the Antichrist tries to kill a Christian or succeeds in killing a Christian, the Christian wins. That's the theme of the book of Revelation as well. They win whenever they die for Christ because that's from heaven's perspective. Now, this pattern of the Antichrist 
is starting to be established in the book of Acts with the opposition against Christ and his followers. And let me also educate you on this. There's two ways or two approaches of Antichrist. The first approach is going to be like a dragon. A dragon is, is large, fiery, evil, oppressive, destructive. A dragon kills. A dragon persecutes. It destroys. It imprisons. And of course, I'm using this language dragon because that's the symbolism in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 of, of Satan. He's a dragon. What the point is this. Satan, the Antichrist system, or whoever it is, will first try to kill Christians and destroy them. And you see this theme. Go turn forward with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. The book of Acts, chapter 9, we're, going to, we're still in the, the motto of trying to kill Christians at this time of history. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Okay, this is the position. This is the, the man who had Christ killed, had Stephen killed. And now Saul is going to the Antichrist here, the high priest. And he asks letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, there's the dragon. There's the Antichrist of the moment trying to kill Christians. And Saul is aligned with him. The Antichrist. And, of course, Saul's conversion happens in chapter 9, and he changes allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's converted. But what you learn is this. The first way that Satan and the Antichrist will work is through death. It's just simply putting Christians to death. But Satan learns. He learns that killing Christians doesn't work. Always. The, re the reason why is because after they start killing the Christians here in the book of Acts, what do the Christians do? They spread out. Um, after the persecution that Saul brought upon them, later in the book of Acts, you learn that the Christians went to Galilee. The Christians started spreading out and going everywhere. And as the Christians spread, they take the gospel with them. So Satan learns and he says, let's try it another way. Let's try to destroy the, the faith another way. So if he, doesn't, if he doesn't destroy the faith as a dragon... Then he will try to work like a serpent, which is really just a small little dragon. The serpent is crafty. He sneaks in. He's subtle. He's quiet. He's unnoticed. You can't hear him. And he speaks things that sound true, looks good, but it leads you wrong and leads you to hell. This is what happens later in the book of Acts. You have the Pharisees who are Christians. These are Pharisees that convert to the Christian faith. But they can't leave all their Pharisaicalism behind. They can't leave all their pride of being a Jew behind. So what they do is they say, well, to become a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. You've got to be circumcised. And that becomes the great Antichrist message of the early church. That becomes the great message that Paul is so angry about in the book of Galatians. And 
That's the, the message that Antichrist is using throughout the time of the apostles, trying to get these people to go back to Judaism to add something to Christ or supplement Christ with Moses more than Christ and all that stuff. So the point you learn about Antichrist is his strategy with, with attacking the church. He will try to put the church to death like a, like a dragon. If he can't stop the church that way, then he'll try to corrupt the church like a serpent and speak lies and, and affect or infect the the doctrine, the teaching of the church. So it leads the church away from Jesus into heresy. Now, whenever you put all this together and you see what the apostles are doing in their time, in their generation, then you start reading other epistles and you read Revelation and you read 2 Thessalonians and you start realizing that there's really a, a present tense reality that they're dealing with in their life. And when you understand that the high priest is, is like the Godfather puppeting all this Antichrist aspect against the apostles, against the church, it helps make sense to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in your handout in a dynamic way, in a way that can fit with this very theme. Because it's just a pattern of Antichrist in the time of the apostles. Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10 in your handout. It says this, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, and that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. Now you're asking the same question that everybody has ever asked when they read this passage. And the question is this, what in the world is he talking about? Where does this apply? How does this apply? And as I mentioned earlier, some people will read this and say, this is only talking about the future, some person, the Antichrist to come. But as I just explained to you the history the background of an Antichrist figure in the time of the apostles, and that this is something that the apostles are presently and imminently concerned about, and that there are two different judgments coming within history after the time of the apostles. And at the end of history, it helps you appreciate this fact, that this can apply historically first to the apostles' generation. And I had the notes on your, at the bottom of the page saying this. Number one, the high priest in the temple can easily be the temple in Jerusalem. 
or the one who sets himself as God in Jerusalem, in that temple during the time of the apostles, and he is considered here as the lawless one. A good question is this. What is restraining the exposure of all this evil and lawless one? It could be that the Christians are still in Jerusalem at that time. And whether and when they were removed by being put to death or by moving away and escaping, then when the godly are gone, then there's no reason to save the city. Whenever the people, God's people are removed or promoted to heaven through death, then judgment comes with full destruction upon the lawless one and the temple of God there in Jerusalem, and he destroys them. So this is a wiser way of applying this passage historically because you realize it does apply historically and therefore the pattern is set. So if there is a future application, it's only because it first applied in history. And then as you continue to study the future with the coming of Christ, there may be a way in which the same pattern is fulfilled with some system or a person in the future. But again, Antichrist theme is not simply a person, it's a pattern that's fulfilled and carried out throughout history. Another Antichrist passage of Scripture is Revelation chapter 13. And before we read this part, let me summarize this for you. In Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is in the sky. That's Satan. Jesus Christ ascends in 30 AD and he casts down the dragon to the ground to be destroyed. Cast him down to the ground. When you cast the dragon down to the ground, you know what happens? He gets mad. And when he gets mad, he, that dragon gives his power to three beasts. Okay, first, there's a sea beast, which is Rome, because Rome comes from the Sea of Nations. The second beast is the land beast. And that's part of the land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel. And we're going to read about him. And the land beast is going to give power to the image of the beast. Let me read through this passage in Revelation 13 and make the application. And we're going to see how it fits historically with the time of the apostles referring to the high priest and the temple in Jerusalem as being a type of antichrist for that time. Verse 11, Revelation 13, verse 11 says this in your handout. I saw the land beast coming out of the land and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. Let me pause right there. The reason why there's three beasts, the sea beast, the land beast, and the image of the beast is because it's a counterfeit of the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Well, Satan, the dragon, is going to have a counterfeit of the Trinity, the sea beast, the land beast, and the image of the beast. And here, <clears throat> this is the second per- a counterfeit of the second person, the Trinity, the, sea, the land beast. And since he's from the land, in the biblical symbolism, he's a part of Judaism. It's going to arise out of Judaism, this really bad lamb beast, and he has two horns. Horns in the Bible is a symbol of power. The horns here represent a political power and a religious power. Two horns. 
When you look at the time of the apostles, the Herods had control of the high priest. There was a union in the temple system of the king of the Herods. okay, and they would put the high priest that they could control part of the religion. So the religious power and the political power of Judaism with the Herods was all welded together to form this land beast, this type of antichrist beast. Verse 12, the land beast exercises all authority of the sea beast in his presence. This is a copy or counterfeit of the son having the authority of the father. Just as the land beast, Judaism, is going to have the power, so to speak, of Rome. They're going to use the power of Rome to weaponize themselves against the church. This is whenever Caesar, Nero Caesar is going to persecute the church, just like uh, the, the church of the, the powers in Jerusalem. There's going to be a time where they weld together and they go against the church in the 60s. And Paul and Peter and James are all going to be killed. Or not James. James yeah, there's another James. They is killed later uh, in the 60s there. So, <clears throat> not the 1960s, but the, the 60s of the apostles, all right? Verse 13. Actually, let's go to verse 12. It says later in verse 12, the land beast causes those on the land to pay homage to the sea beast, whose wound, whose deadly wound was healed. See, there's a counterfeit of death and resurrection. And the, the, Judaizer, the Judaizers, the land beast, is giving homage to Rome, to, to the sea beast. Verse 13 says this. The land beast performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the land in the sight of men. This is not literal fire, y'all. This is symbolic of Pentecost. What happened at the time of Pentecost? Fire came down. True fire from heaven came down. Elijah brings fire from heaven. That's the reality. That's the truth. This is a counterfeit Pentecost. This is whenever some type of, of, of religious force comes down and or like, like some kind of fanaticism comes down as a type of new religion. That's what's being symbolized by this fire coming down from heaven. It's a counterfeit of Acts chapter 2. Verse 14 says, The land beast deceives those on the land by the signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the sea beast. The land beast told those on the land to make an image of the beast, of the sea beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. <clears throat> And then, look at verse 15, the land beast was granted power to give breath. See, here's a, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. The land beast gives breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast should both speak and cause whoever does not worship that image to be killed. The breath coming into this image of the beast, it's giving life, so to speak, uh, demonic life, to this system. And it's an image. It's a false image. What this is, it's a false church. It's a false temple. And this image is bringing worship to itself. This is very fitting to the temple in Jerusalem. The Herods built the temple. And right after it's built, 
They had their high priest in there. They're killing the Christians. They had this land beast, so to speak, set up. They're bringing all the gold and silver into the temple. And that is that Antichrist figure that is so fitting with what Revelation 13 is speaking about. For the sake of time, let me not read the rest of it, but just simply say that it has a mark of the beast to buy and sell. That means ownership. You have to be owned by this beast to do commerce and to come in and out and have relationship with this image. I'm out of time today. The issue is, let me bring it down to a couple points. This is a pattern that began with Jesus' trial. It goes through the book of Acts. And let me give you a couple applications. Uh, that is this. Number one, the, there's always a temptation of, of antichrist out there. There's ways in which culture today is trying to cancel Christians. If, we, if the culture cannot kill Christians, then it can try to silence Christians with lawsuits, uh, with threatenings, with you being fired from your job. That's a type of antichrist system where you get punished for being a Christian. This is where you can use wisdom, what's called righteous deception. Sometimes it's best just to keep your mouth shut, to keep your job and keep your mouth shut and spread the gospel silently where you are to be a good influence where you are, not tell the government every single thing that they need to know because you know that they're going to use it for evil. That's where there's a theme of righteous deception for Christians who are struggling under an antichrist regime. You see that with Pharaoh in Egypt where the where the midwives saved the lives of the children being born, yet told a lie and deceived Pharaoh because he was Antichrist of the day. Also, this helps you focus on the means of grace. God's Word, His sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and prayer. You don't want to get sucked into other movements other things that try to grab for power that are going to overthrow Antichrist in a sense that you're going to think that political power is the only way. You want, you want God's power. You want God's wisdom to mark you, to identify you, to claim you. And you realize that the way to win against Antichrist system is to outlive it. Meaning, you go all the way to the end and Christians simply wait until that system falls and all that destruction comes upon itself. But you, you focus on Christ. You focus on the, true, the truth of the means of grace, His marking, His identity. And all these antichrist patterns will come and go. But Christians will persevere to the end. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for our time together. We give you thanks for the wisdom that you give us. We pray, Father, that you'll give all of us wisdom in our days, and we pray for revival and reformation that you will bring down antichrist systems in our culture, and that you'll expose their evil and give Christians wisdom to live in these days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.